It's really tricky because there's so much pressure on these guys to get back that I think a lot of them play hurt or come back too early and get re-injured. And you're right, then leading to this injury-prone tag, which sometimes is fair, especially you get these recurrent hamstring injuries or calf strains or quad injuries. But then some of it's not really fair. You, you have freak injuries. Yeah, I love the Rob Gronkowski injury-prone label after he broke his forearm. Like, exactly how is that... Was he going to prevent that from happening? You know, so I, I don't know that it's always fair. I think my advice would be, if possible, try to give your body as much time as possible to heal and don't return too early. Hey, this is Dr. David Geyer, orthopedic surgeon, sports medicine specialist, and author of That's Gotta Hurt, The Injuries That Change Sports Forever, and you're listening to the Heads and Tails Podcast. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Salm, and each week I bring you an inspiring athlete story of perseverance or expert knowledge in the field of sports health and safety. Just like flipping a coin, you can't control what happens to you in sports or in life. You can always control how you respond. This is my response after suffering a traumatic brain injury in a high school football game, and I hope it leaves you feeling both inspired and informed. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails Podcast. This week I'm interviewing Dr. David Geyer, who is an orthopedic surgeon and sports medicine specialist out of Charleston, South Carolina. Dr. Geyer has been writing and podcasting on various sports medicine topics for years and before podcasting was even cool, to be honest. And uh, today we are going to be discussing his new book called That's Gotta Hurt, The Injuries That Change Sports Forever. Uh, In this book, Dr. Geyer examines how emerging uh, surgeries, treatments, and prevention strategies affected athletes in many sports. And uh, Dr. Guy was nice enough to send me a copy, and I just finished reading it. And I really enjoyed it, and I appreciate the work that went into it in terms of you know backing it up with all, all the stats and the um, different athlete stories that you had in there. And you really touched on all of the important topics that are um, – you know, problems in sports medicine today. And I was thinking of like who the audience could kind of be for. And I really think it could be for like anyone, you know, if it's someone who wants to get into sports medicine, whether that's athletic training, uh, physical therapy, uh, becoming a doctor like yourself, um, or, you know, parents, you know, to kind of understand like what the issues are out there and then giving them the information to make, you know, decisions on what they're going to do with their kids. Uh, and then even athletes too, just to kind of talk about like the culture of, you know, toughness and playing through injuries and, you know, what's the risk reward for playing hurt versus not and sitting out and in terms of longevity and stuff like that. So I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today and, and thanks for, for writing this book. Oh, I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, uh, Kevin. I'm really excited. Yeah, I, I do think that that's been one of the great things about the book over the last month or so since it's been out is the hearing from people that see it from a different perspective. Some, uh, Yeah, you're right. Some are parents that have kids that play some of these sports, and they remember, say, Hank Gathers dying uh, on the basketball court. You know, He had a sudden cardiac death, um, but they never even realized that, one, that we can – potentially screen for it with electrocardiograms, EKGs, and then why we don't do that and what the pros and cons of mandatory screening are. But yeah, it's the athletes. It's, you know, Bill Walton saying, look, somebody's got to tell these guys that, hey, we got to keep our bodies healthy and not run ourselves into the ground. I mean, he had 37 surgeries uh, in his career and afterwards. So it, it has a lot of important messages, and I'm really happy that it's resonated with a lot of people. 
Yeah, for sure. And before we get off the topic of the cardiomyopathy, I think that's how you pronounce it. I'm not a doctor, so. Um, <laughs> but I recently heard about a study that they were doing for screening for that sudden cardiac death uh, with medical students, and they use like ultrasound to diagnose uh, cardiomyopathy. And it was like a 90-something percent like accuracy rate in diagnosing these injuries. So that was kind of a cool thing that I heard of. Because of, like in your book, you talk about how the um, – electrocardiograms are kind of like not practical i guess to like do that you know for like a mandatory thing so i thought that was an interesting point to make but uh so can you start off by just talking about like how you got into sports medicine like was it an injury yourself or what really got you into the field yeah no i mean i think that's that there's always an interesting story with us that uh, the orthopedic surgeons that do sports medicine a lot of former athletes no question i uh played sports growing up can't say that I was a stellar athlete. I uh, played different sports every season as a kid, uh, as most of everybody did at that point, until I guess I was maybe 12 or so and switched to uh, travel soccer and play, went to playing that year round. Uh, didn't really pursue uh, competitive sports past that. I played rec league sports through high school, but didn't play formally in high school. It didn't go on to play in college. But then I've been active ever since with at running at one point now it's more lifting weights and other kind of interval training but i have loved it all along and so when i got into medical school and then went you know decided to go orthopedic surgery it was you know i wanted to be able to help people just get back to what they love to do it wasn't so much that hey we get to do cool surgeries or we get to stand on the sidelines with pro athletes it was seeing a 26 year old runner that has been out of running for four weeks or six weeks or however long for a stress fracture and getting to tell her that she can run again or the high school athlete that tears her ACL goes through surgery, goes through rehab. And now she gets to play again. That excitement on their face when you tell them that they get to go back uh, is why I do it. And, you know, there's lots of frustrations in healthcare and, and lots going on that, that you're like, Oh, this is less than ideal, but being able to get people back to what they love to do. There's, there's not much better. There's not much better than that. Yeah. I mean, I could see that being super rewarding. Um, and later on in the, in the interview, I'm going to ask you about the athletes who can't quite get back to their sports and how you kind of handle those. Cause I was one of those guys once. Um, okay. so, uh, PHI aside, you know, what have been some of the most like memorable patient outcomes or injuries slash outcomes that you've had as an orthopedic surgeon? Yeah, I mean, the, you know, it's always when you do, uh, you know, work with pro teams and you have like some big injury that, you know, while you're covering it, that's always a big deal. You know, I won't give names, but I, you know, was the doctor of a women's professional tennis tournament uh, for seven years, you know, and so all the top players come through. And so when you get an injury to one of the top players on center court and you have 10, 12,000 people watching you, that's always memorable. Uh, you know, I don't know that those injuries are anything special, but the circumstances you tend to remember for, for a long time. Uh, I mean, I think that the ones that stick out are probably the ones that you just don't do very often. You get these complex multi-ligament knee injuries or you get, you know, something that's, you know, a little more unusual than maybe what you do, you know, 50 or 100 times a year. That tends to stick out. You know, I don't know. I mean, uh, fortunately, knock on wood, I can't say I've ever, at least that I know of, had too many bad outcomes. That would probably stick out in my mind if if I, I did. But uh, no, I mean, I, I think that, I like 
surgery. I like getting people back to what they love to do. I really love taking care of young kids that are dealing with injuries because uh, largely I think we can we should try to prevent those. But I can't say there's that many that I'd say, oh, that's what I, you know, right. that's the one that I'll tell my kids about that type of thing. Um, because again, uh, you're it's not just a surgery or just an injury. It's, it's a patient. It's, it's a person that loves doing something and you have to kind of treat the whole person. Okay. Uh, so what inspired you to write this book and, and what's your like intended purpose uh, for the book? Well, you know, I think that I've seen just as a lifelong sports fan, you know, since I was a kid getting up early in the morning to watch Olympics and watch wide world of sports in the afternoons on Saturdays. And then obviously, uh, just was a huge fan going through my childhood and then getting into medical school and residency and fellowship within now I'm treating sports injuries. I just watched a, just a dramatic shift in the landscape from how injuries were treated in the, you know, when I was a kid in the eighties up, up till now, I mean, it's just light and day, night and day differences in terms of, you know, we don't make the big long incisions on the front of the knee anymore. And we don't, um, there's just so many things that we can do better than we used to. And so I wanted to tell that story, but then now over the last five, six years, as I've been on my website and writing a newspaper column, I'm really paying attention to, yes, we're a lot better, but in a lot of ways, there are problems that we're we're going to have to figure out. We're going to have to answer because in a lot of ways we've, I don't want to say we've created more problems than we've solved, but we're in a lot of ways we're we're losing ground. The youth sports injuries, the concussions and CTE. So I, I wanted to really share the message that sports medicine has dramatically impacted the sport more than anything else. But it's not perfect, and we've got to keep getting better if we want to keep the people that play these sports and do that types of exercise if we want to keep them healthy. Yeah, and a lot of people who listen to this podcast are the ones who you're trying to keep healthy. <laughs> and um, your yeah. description of what the purpose was of your book is probably exactly what I would say I would predict your purpose was because that's exactly what came across when I was reading it. So mission accomplished on that one. Um yes. So who did you have in mind when you were writing the book as the intended audience? I know I kind of spoke earlier that it's kind of all-encompassing, I think. Um, but was there anything, any, any particular group in particular that you were trying to resonate with? Yeah, it's interesting. As I was researching, the book started as, as me as a fan talking about uh, when I first envisioned it, and this was literally the first few weeks after sort of outlining that book and in the acknowledgments, I, I talk about how my dad and I came up with the concept for the book. But it was the, hey, these injuries were were landmark shifts. These were, these were some of the most famous injuries, or maybe not famous, some of these injuries, people like Michael Jordan, I've heard a number of people tell me they don't even remember him being hurt. So how was his one of the biggest injuries that changed sports forever? But it was it was writing it as a sports fan. This is what happened. These were the circumstances. And that was a lot of fun doing that research. But very quickly, and this gets to back to what I do on a regular basis, uh, seeing that all right, so it led to this shift. And it's not just that we made better injury treatments or better surgeries. Some of these are these injuries led to rules changes. Some of them led to uh, changes with the athletes themselves, how we train the athletes. Some of them led to more protective equipment for those sports. So it wasn't just what orthopedic surgeons do in our 
uh, offices and in surgery. Some of it is how the sports have evolved because of these injuries. And so then I realized pretty quickly that, hey, uh, this is a big deal for not just the people that play these sports, but their parents and their coaches. Yeah, I think it, it was great. I'm like I said before, like I'm super impressed with how you put it together, and I think it's a a, a really great book. And we're going to touch on some of those topics right now uh, that you brought up in, in in the book that are still problems in sports today. That I think that we could still have an impact on. And if I didn't, I probably wouldn't be having this podcast because <laughs> you know that's kind of my mission too. So um, one interesting point, one of many interesting points that you brought up was kind of how injuries affect recruiting, the recruiting process, the drafting process in professional sports. Um, particularly, you mentioned the, the Portland Trailblazers being kind of like the butt of all the jokes in terms of making bad draft picks um, because of injury-prone you know, picks. Um, so, you know, how much, like, how can doctors kind of like predict the future with, with these injuries um, from your perspective? Yeah, it's really tricky. And, and you're right, Portland gets a lot of criticism having some of the most infamous draft picks in NBA history. You know, Sam Bowie is obviously the title of one of my chapters, but it's not just him being picked before Michael Jordan and then having all his injuries, but it's Bill Walton that we talked about. It's Greg Oden, number one pick, who barely played because of multiple microfracture surgeries. Brandon Roy, who retired because of knee arthritis and never lived up to the potential that he showed early. But the problem is you could say, well, you know, maybe they should have seen that coming. And I talk about some of the injuries that those guys had and could you have predicted it? But it's it's a challenge. You know, you've got guys that your only knowledge of them is basically how they played in high school or maybe college if they went to college. And then a combine, NFL or NBA combine, where you have doctors doing an exam and asking questions and getting MRIs. But at the end of the day, that's not a crystal ball. That's not seeing into the future. And all those tests and all those, you know, things like MRIs are just showing structural damage, but they don't show pain and they don't show, you know, a weakness that may lead to an injury. And I, I think it's really tricky. I, I interviewed Matt Matava, the at the time was head of the NFL Physician Society, and he put it, he had great perspective. He really uh, compared uh, sports, pro sports to sort of a Darwinian type of process that basically pro sports sort of weed out guys that their bodies just aren't going to hold up. And some guys can play 10, 20 years and have very few injuries. And some guys don't even get drafted because they just can't stay healthy. How a team figures that out, we're trying to figure it out. There's a lot of uh, and I didn't really talk about this much in the book, but that, you know, the whole money ball concept, Billy Bean and the Oakland A's uh, doing all these statistical analyses of, you know, guys getting on base and things like that for baseball. That's coming to the injury prevention world. There's a lot of behind the scenes studies going on to. All right. If you have an MCL injury, you know, what's the probability you get back at X point compared to an, a meniscus tear compared to an ACL tear? We're going to have much better data in the next few years about, all right, if this player has this combination of injury, he's got X probability of playing this many years in the NBA. We're just not there yet. So long, long answer, I realized your question. It's getting better, but it's still largely um, an educated guess at best. Yeah, no, that was that was perfect. It wasn't wasn't a long answer, but I kind of resonate with with that statement because you know, I think it's I really like that part where you in your book where you talk to it's like a Darwinian type aspect, like survival of the fittest, you know, in in pro football because 
I mean, I obviously didn't last very long because of my, my brain injury in high school, and that kind of ended my career. Uh, that was, like, partially due to how I played. But now I have this, like, cartilage injury. I had an oats procedure done, like, a year and a half ago, and it's still, like, not that great. And I'm still, like, struggling with it. And you mentioned in your book how I was – you know, I was kind of disappointed to read it, but I mean, it is what it is. But basically, like people with cartilage injuries are pretty much screwed uh, in terms of getting back to their sport and playing at the level that they had previously been at. Um, do you have like any ideas or any advice for athletes to like try to stay marketable to teams like after an injury? I'm not saying like cartilage specifically, but you know, if you get like a you know injury prone tag, like is there any way that you think an athlete can kind of market themselves to a college team or a professional team to, you know, still be a, a viable player out there? It's really tricky because there's so much pressure on these guys to get back that I think a lot of them play hurt or come back too early and get re-injured. And you're right, then leading to this injury-prone tag, which sometimes is fair, especially you get these recurrent hamstring injuries or calf strains or quad injuries. But then some of it's not really fair. You, you have freak injuries. Yeah, I loved the Rob Gronkowski injury-prone label after he broke his forearm. Like, exactly how is that – was he going to prevent that from happening? Right. So I, I don't know that it's always fair. I think my advice would be, if possible, try to give your body as much time as possible to heal and don't return too early. There's so much pressure on these guys not to let their teammates down and the coaches and the team down and and their fans down, and they're afraid of losing their starting position and their guaranteed salaries and all of that. So I think that, yes, maybe the doctors, maybe the teams are putting a lot of pressure on them to come back, but I think there's a lot of athletes putting pressure on themselves. But I think if you come back too soon, that's where you worry about this cycle of recurrent injuries that then does unfortunately sort of label you as, hey, we need to probably stay away from that guy. So I don't know that you can completely avoid some of these injuries, but if you can, at least the ones that tend to be recurrent injuries, do what you can to try to get it to heal before you come back. That would probably be my, my biggest piece of advice. Well, I'm a good example of that in terms of what not to do. So, uh, yeah. anyway, so I know you said that we've come a long way with like the surgical treatments and stuff like that, um, in sports medicine. So what is like the glaring gaps in surgical research, you know, for sports medicine today and like what's on the horizon? Yeah, I think that we're get, constantly looking to get better with all the types of surgeries we do. I think that it's tricky. In the past, it's always been about, you know, this percentage of people do well and they're just sort of subjective ratings like, hey, my knee feels good or my yeah, strength tests or things like that. What matters to pro athletes, college athletes, but it matters to all of us that exercise is not, yeah, my knee feels good. It's, you know, I've got this motion or this strength. It's that, can I do what I want to do as well as I want to do? And is it as good as I was before the injury? And so that's what we're really trying to do, whether that's improving our surgeries or if that's doing something that avoids a surgery, like the PRP and stem cells that people are trying for arthritis type changes. Um, I think we're still trying to figure out what gets people back to the way they were before they get hurt. And some injuries we've been able to do that, but a lot 
we're making them better, but we're not making them the way they were before they got hurt. And I think that's the frontier. That's where we're headed uh, going forward is this era of making structures new again. And and we're a long way off uh, for sure, but I think that is what we're trying to figure out. Okay. Uh, what surgeries do you most commonly perform and like surgeries that or injuries that come into your practice most often? Well, generally for sports medicine, uh, just statistically, the injuries that we see in athletes and active people that end up needing surgery most often are knee and shoulder injuries. I mean, we see all sorts of ankle sprains and hamstrings. There's tons of things we see that don't need surgery, but the ones that usually do are knee and shoulder. So most of us are practicing, this is true in my case, 90% of the surgeries are knee and shoulder. So in the knee, it's things like meniscus tears, ACL injuries, um, you know, maybe cartilage stuff and other ligament injuries of the knee. With the shoulder, it's things like rotator cuff repairs, labral tears, um, that type of thing, shoulder dislocations, that those, I, mean, I would say, yeah, that's 85 to 90%. And then just a, a smattering of elbow and ankle surgeries. I don't do hip surgeries and I don't do joint replacements. So uh, that would be where there are some guys that will do that as patients get older. I, I tend to pass that to the joint replacement guys, but, um, yeah, knee and shoulders mainly. Okay. Um, so how many of these are injuries that come into your office do you think are preventable? I think it depends on, uh, what the person, the patient, you know, how old they are and what they do in kids. I think it's high. I mean, I would say, uh, kids before gr their growth spurt, it's probably 50% or more of their injuries because so many of their injuries are overuse injuries. And I think that's probably true, if not higher for runners. I think that people that play contact and collision sports, that's going to be lower just because people collide, they, they land awkwardly, something like that. That's a lot less, that's a lot harder to prevent than people that run through pain, kids that pitch, you know, year round without a break, things like that. So runners and, and kids, I think theirs are largely preventable. Soccer, football, basketball, probably a lot less so. Okay, interesting. And I don't think I've ever heard anyone with that take, so I, I, I appreciate that. Um, you know, now since you're a surgeon and you have all these injuries that come into your office, you know, I'm big on, like, expectations. Like, when I was getting wheeled in to have a craniotomy done, my doctors said, told me that I would never play football. I would never set foot on a football field again. Like that was my expectation going into surgery. And that's what I was thinking about. And it was kind of like unmotivating because that's all I really thought I was, all I cared about. So how do you, like, what effects do expectations going into surgery have on post-surgical outcomes um, in your experience? And kind of how do you treat or how do you, I guess, define those expectations to your patients? I, I think that is a great point, and I think that that is an important discussion before surgery between the patient and the, the surgeon because it's not just I, you have an ACL tear, we're going to fix the ACL tear. You have to fix the person and help them get back to what they want to do. So I don't think it's fair to have a discussion of surgery without the, hey, this is what to expect in the recovery. 
This is what to expect in the return to sports. Um, you know, this is what to ex- expect and how likely all of that is. I mean, none of the surgeries we do are 100% successful. You can never guarantee people that they're going to get back uh, to what they want to do. Obviously, the success rates are really good, but they're not perfect. So I think it's a long discussion. And I think that's one of the challenges, not so much in my book, but just in my website where I get several hundred people that email me every week. And half of those people that email me have seen a doctor already and they're still confused. And I think that's one of the things I've been very passionate about over the years. Part of the reason I do all this is that I think we need to do a better job in our practices, but also online, helping people figure out what's best for them so that they can play with their kids down the road so that they can lift weights or run in their 60s and 70s and not be hobbling around and that kind of thing. So I think long discussions, you know, where you answer all the questions and on the patient side, you ask all the questions. I mean, that's why you're there. It's your body. Don't have a surgery. Uh, if you know, you're not comfortable with the information you've been given, find out what the risks are, what the benefits are, and then make the decision that's best for you. That's good advice. Um, kind of going back to what we were talking about before and like not continuing to play hurt or play through the pain and stuff like that. You know, I'm, sh- I'm sure you have a lot of young athletes that come through and think they're invincible like I thought I was at one point in time. So how do you keep them from thinking in like the here and now and have them thinking about the long run like you're saying like so you could run around with your kids and you could lift weights when you're 60 like that kind of thing. How do you ch- kind of help change that mindset? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It is tricky. And I don't know that there's an absolute right way. I think that it's getting easier with increased awareness of injuries and consequences of injuries. That's maybe one benefit of 24-7 sports talk on the internet and on uh, all these cable shows and things like that is that we recognize, I mean, we have doctors on SportsCenter now explaining injuries and we have uh, all this kind of thing. So I think that's helped. But I mean, I think it still at the end of the day always gets back to sort of a balance between risk and reward. And and yes, there's more education, there's more awareness, but the, then the the perceived benefits are so great now. The, the dream of college scholarships, the dream of tons and tons of money if you make the pros – Kids see that. Their parents see that. I mean, you see 12-year-olds in the Little League World Series on national TV. I mean, I think that there's a lot of external pressures that push uh, the envelope. And so despite the fears of Tommy John surgery or, yeah, concussions and maybe CTE down the road, boy, there's a lot of athletes and parents and coaches that the benefits are still too great. And so I just think that it's one of those things that – Everybody involved needs to really just decide what the benefits are, what the risks are for them, and then just try to make an informed decision that's best for them, Not again, not just now, but down the road. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough thing to get through to uh, kids to, like, grasp that concept. Like, I'm 27 now, but it's taken me to this point to kind of realize, like, you know, some things just aren't worth doing because of the potential aftermath of that will do to your body. But that's one of the challenges football is going to have is that parents are probably asking that more than in other sports. The they're starting to say, is the risk worth the potential benefit? And I'm you know not here to necessarily uh, criticize football, but I think that those are questions you have to ask generally. Like if you're 
wondering, you know, if I'm considering buying a $1,500 football helmet for my son so that he can play football, I'm questioning whether or not I even want him playing that sport at all, uh, or at least a tackle version of it at 10 years old. And I'm again, I'm, I'm just using that as an example. Uh, but these are things that we need to figure figure out. And it's not even just parents figuring that out for their coaches. It's the runner or the bodybuilder or weightlifter that suffers a serious injury and do they push through and get back to what they love to do and still do it seven days a week just as hard as they were before now knowing that hey i may be causing damage that makes that body part hurt when i'm 50 and 60 and 70 so maybe do i back off or pick up something else i mean there's this isn't just kids necessarily we all have to think through that right have you ever pushed through an injury that you shouldn't have um Probably uh, the one I'm thinking of. So I, sometimes I'll do it right. I broke my ankle in college running. Actually, I stepped awkwardly on the pavement on the road trying to get around some people on the sidewalk and broke my ankle. Didn't end up needing surgery, but had to be in a cat. Back in those days, we used casts more than boots. But uh, so I was non weight bearing for six weeks. So I still went to the gym on crutches, but just managed to hobble around and get from uh, bench to bench. But uh, so I at least I, I was compliant there. But I will say that I had a hamstring injury. I don't know how long ago this was, seven, eight years ago, um, from all things doing P90X um, or no, uh, insanity. It was one of those two. I can't right. remember. And I was out like eight weeks. I mean, it was miserably painful. And um, part of the reason it took eight weeks is I was just determined to keep working out. And so I'm sure I just kept aggravating it. Um, Doctors, I will tell you, are probably not the best patients. Uh, We tend to not listen to our own advice. Um, But that one was one, as I'm sure you and people that you know, like one of the great things about exercise and sports is that you constantly push yourself. But when you've got Sometimes having really concrete goals makes that really hard because I had like this program I was going to do for 12 weeks and injury was not part of that program. And so that was my own fault for not, I I bet that would have gotten better in about three or four weeks had I actually listened, not listened, but just taken my own advice. It's funny that you say that about like the structured program, because like, that's how I hurt my knee doing this like weightlifting, like CrossFit workout, like program that was supposed to go for like six months and like at one point I did like a deadlift and I had like there's some pinched nerve like my hip like you know pinched some nerve in my quad and my whole quad was like numb but like I was I still felt strong so I just kept going and then eventually I hurt my knee and I swear to god I think it has like something to do there was a correlation there so it's in some way um but anyway while we were kind of on the topic of uh football you know, I know you, you brought up in your book as well. You know, what what do you think is football's number one health concern? Unfortunately, I, I do think that it's probably the head injuries and the long-term risk of that. I, I, you know, I, I know there's a lot of thought that this is media hype, but I will tell you, especially after interviewing a lot of the researchers at Boston University that are really doing a lot of the autopsies and studying the brains of these former players – it's a real risk. We don't know how common it is. We don't know if this is, you know, those 95 players, we don't know if they're just, a, we know they're a skewed sample because they were having symptoms. That's why they donated their brains after they uh, died. 
But the flip side of that is we don't know is is this 10% of football players that are going to develop CTE or is it 1%? And so getting some of these tests to identify it in living people will be helpful. But I think that it is real. And I if I'm a parent of a kid that wants to play football, that's where I – you know the pros, yes, are probably at risk, but it's something sort of know the the risks. I'm more worried about the kids whose brains aren't done growing. So I think the going forward, I think what we're really going to have to look at is do we really expose kids at 10, 11, 12 years old to tackle football? I think where we're going over the next decade is we're going to have pretty much flag football or passing league football up until high school. And then after that, then they go to a contact sport. I, I think that's what's coming because if you look at these studies and I shared them in my book, the the players that are developing CTE, the former players are almost exclusively the ones that started tackle football before age 12. And then they continued to high school, to college, to many years in the pros. And so, you know, maybe if you played tackle football and then gave it up at 16, maybe not a big deal. But if you're uh, that, that's my concern is I, I think if I was a parent that had a son that wanted to play football, I would be strongly concerned about tackle football at a young age. I and I think you're going to hear that that drumbeat more and more here in the next few years. Yeah, I, I think I agree with that statement. I'm a, I'm a guy who played football and tackle football since I was like eight years old and I didn't last obviously very long, but like I can remember specific instances of like, you know, blacking out, seeing stars and crap. Like when I was like 10, you know, like yeah. different, you know, it happened much more frequently when I was in high school. Uh, but you know, it's a different story, but I, I, I agree. I would like to see that happen as well. So would, well, it, would you, not, what? it's not just the concussions. It's the, um, I mean, that is obviously true. Cause I'll get people that argue with me and, and I'm, I'm love, I love to hear conflicting opinions or different opinions, but it isn't even just the concussions because you're right. They don't deliver the same force that certainly high school kids do. And then college and the pros, I mean, there's no question the forces aren't as much, but their brains are still not as developed and capable of withstanding that they don't have the neck strength to, to support the head like the adults do. But then it's also those repetitive blows at the beginning of every play. It's the tackles that don't knock kids out and don't cause full concussions. But we worry about those blows that kids suffer 50 and 100 times a week that they don't even think about. That's what I think accumulates. And so I think that's actually fairly easy to get out of the sport. And the argument that that that's going to set kids back when they're in high school, I would just point out supposedly I couldn't I tried to interview him and he didn't respond. But supposedly Tom Brady didn't play tackle football until high school. I think he turned out okay. Exactly. Yeah, there's there's plenty of stories like that around. So would you say that that's like that not playing tackle football growing up would be the number one way or your number one suggestion for making football safer? Yeah, uh, no question. I mean, I think with a lot of sports, the the one right below that would be if you suffer an injury and you don't, uh, whether or not you know it's a big deal, you let your team know, let your coaches know, your athletic trainer or doctor, and get checked out. Don't try to hide a concussion. I think that's way too common. But I think, yeah, the the youth tackle football would be something that really doesn't change the sport that much uh, and keeps a huge number of kids uh, healthy later in life. Okay. Um, so speaking of catastrophic injuries and people playing with concussions and getting second impact syndrome like myself, uh, how scared should athletes be of catastrophic injuries? And you have a section in your book where you really highlight 
um, in particular, like the extreme sports. And you actually mentioned a guy named Kevin Pierce, who I had on my uh, podcast a, a while back. Oh uh, man, I'm jealous because he he turned me down for an interview. <laughs> oh really? Yeah. I, I had to be persistent. He was, I he was wait doing something. He it wasn't that he didn't want to do it. He was filming, so I can't remember. But it was re- he was really gracious. But no, that's great that you got to talk to him. Yeah, I, I I reached out to him like in like February of last year, and he was like, "No, nah, I'm busy right now." But if you reach back in September, I'll I might be I might have time. So I put it in my awesome. calendar, reached back in September, and, and, he, and he did it. So, uh, yeah. So you know, how scared should athletes be of these catastrophic injuries? Um, because obviously, I don't want people to be scared of playing football because of what happened to me. Because I feel like what happened to me is kind of preventable. Um, you know, where, where's like kind of the line drawn, you know, for prevention measures? Yeah. I mean, it, it's tricky. Uh, I, I think we're a long way from figuring out how to prevent, you know, concussions, especially, but a lot of these injuries, uh, I mean, you mentioned the extreme sports, Kevin Pierce, the was a snowboarder. And in my, yeah, as much as I just was critical, quick aside was just, uh, critical, uh, a little bit of football and what do you do about it? People ask, you know, would you let your son play football? I'd consider that probably before I, the extreme sports make me very nervous. The, the freestyle skiing and the snowboarding where they're flipping 30 and 40 feet in the air or the, the dry, the dry land versions, the skateboarding at the X games, motorcycle, that kind of stuff would worry me a lot more as a parent than even football would you know helmet technology i think is obviously good i think that um obviously as we talked about a minute ago letting people know but i think the trick with a lot of these sports football to one extent but definitely these extreme sports is these athletes know the risk they know that this kind of thing can happen and yet the the thrill of it exceeds that you know, I interviewed uh, Rory Bushfield, the the wife or the husband of uh, Sarah Burke, who died of a catastrophic uh, vertebral artery injury uh, in a training run for an X Games freestyle skiing thing. And he, I, he essentially said she would do it again. She knew the risks of this. They all do. Everybody I interviewed. Yeah, we know the risks uh, and we're going to do it anyway. It's what we love to do. I don't know. I, I I would never tell people they can't do what they want to do, but I, I think that that's it's challenging. I mean, when you've got somebody that basically uh, understands the risk of, of being paralyzed or, or dying and yet they're willing to do it, I, I don't know. I mean, let me ask you, I mean, did Kevin Pierce, uh, would he, if he was healthy, would he do it again? I bet he would. Oh, 100%, yeah. I mean, he was instructed by his doctors not to like ever get on a snowboard again. He's He still snowboards, but he doesn't – do it to the same level that he used to, but oh yeah, yeah I'm sure he would definitely uh, do yeah, it all over again. I don't know what we do. I mean, uh, I'm all for physical activity in sports. Obviously, I just uh, I don't know that there's a, a right answer that applies to everybody. Yeah, and I, no, I agree. I think what you were saying before, like along with those like the P90X program and like how my workout program, like your athletes are constantly trying to get better. And you're always raising the bar, and like it's one thing to do that when you're in when you're playing football and becoming bigger, stronger, faster. Maybe the collisions are a little higher, but when you start doing it with X, you know, in the X Games where you're flying up, you know, 40 feet in the air, or you know, you're hanging off the back of a snowmobile, like one of the stories that you had in your book, you know, it it, it takes it to a whole new level of like danger, I guess. So when you're like trying to keep pushing the envelope, 
Yeah. Um, and it gets even to just the, you know, the rest of us. I mean, I see so often in my uh, practice, I'll see, I mean, I, every, your listeners are going to think I, I hate runners. I really don't. I love runners. <laughs> but I mean, you see these people that are training for a 10K and have never run a race in their life or they're training for their first marathon that for whatever reason they decide – two months before, or maybe in the case of a marathon, four months before, they don't give themselves enough time to ramp up their training, so they start hurting, but they're so focused on making that goal that they push through pain, they push through this injury that gets worse and worse and worse, and then all of a sudden, now they, they're gonna, they have an injury that they're gonna be out six weeks, eight weeks, and they're gonna miss the race altogether, and if they had just sort of planned better and didn't push so hard so fast, they probably could have avoided the injury. I think that that's a real challenge. Um, again, not for necessarily pros, even though it's true for them, but the rest of us that love to achieve goals. Right. And I think that that reminds me of another part in your book where you're talking about how like uh, it's people who are trying to emulate these extreme sport athletes, like young kids, you see them on YouTube and stuff. Like they're not ready to progress to that level yet, and that's kind of how they hurt themselves. So. Uh, I'm kind of guessing that you you feel that I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like the athletes are kind of accountable for these particular injuries, you know, these like catastrophic yeah. injuries. Yeah, I mean, I do. I mean, I, you can't prevent every injury. I talked about that with the Mark Bonacani, the college football player who was paralyzed. You know, we we drop those injury risks dramatically by eliminating the spear tackling, but some of these are going to happen because it's just a freak thing. And in these extreme sports, yeah, they're freak things too. I think that the challenge comes to the kids learning the sports, you know, that they get proper coaching and they do it in, in places where they're supervised and just advance their skills as they learn them rather than just doing it. Hey, that looks cool. I'll try that. Uh, I think, you know, we don't all of a sudden go from a kid that has never played football in his life to putting him on varsity and starting in the game. And he has no idea what he's doing. But in these extreme sports, these kids just see these tricks on YouTube and go out in their backyards or on the ski slopes and try them. So, I mean, I think we need to approach those sports and really everything very seriously with a gradual progression as your physical abilities get better, as your strength gets better, and as your um, understanding of how to do whether it's a trick or whether it's a movement in a particular sport or whatever, you gradually increase and then you do more based on your skill level. And and I think we seem to understand that in in team sports and competitive sports, but then you go to something like the X Games and it seems to be just more, eh, I'm just going to try this and figure it out as I go. Yeah, I, I agree. Like these kids who aren't sponsored by Red Bull don't have like foam pits in their backyard to like practice yeah. this stuff, you know, so – um, speaking of like safety equipment, that was one of my favorite topics in your book was um, the idea of you know the role that safety equipment plays in sports and whether it's you know comfort over safety or making athletes overconfident. So you know how many of the injuries that you see on a daily basis like could have been prevented by equipment? Yeah, no, I think it's a great point. I probably don't see as many as you would think because the a lot of the ones that equipment would prevent. Uh, helmets, helmets with face masks would go to like an orthopedic or not an orthopedic surgeon, but like a neurosurgeon or an um, ophthalmologist that does eye surgery, that kind of thing more than us. So I wouldn't treat a facial fracture or a skull fracture or an orbital wall fracture. But those are the ones that I think are largely preventable. I think at some point we are going to get to a day and I know the 
baseball purists out there are going to cringe at this, but we're going to get to an era at some point where pitchers and fielders wear helmets. And I think we're going to get, or at least helmets with facial protection, if not complete helmets like in hockey or cricket. I think we're going to get to where the batters wear face shields across the board like uh, Jason Hayward and and uh, Juan Carlos Stanton wear now. Uh, we're getting to that. I think you're going to probably have to in- mandate it at the youth level so those kids get used to it because I know the major league players that have never worn that stuff are going to say it interferes with their vision or it feels funny. And, it, you know, I, I get it. But I think that stuff's coming. Gary Green, the medical director of Major League Baseball, told me that that only happens once or twice a year where like a pitcher gets hit in the face with a line drive. But if you're that one or two pitcher and you get a skull fracture like Brandon McCarthy that's having seizures every so often, like to me, I I don't know. I, I would figure out a way to get used to that helmet and not take the chance. But, you know, again, I'm I'm not – I don't know. I, I guess I get their perspective. I just – I'm not sure that I would take that risk the way they feel comfortable doing it. Yeah, I think a lot of it's like a, a toughness thing like in sports or what people think is tough because I just recently had an interview with uh, Riley Cote, who is a enforcer for the Philadelphia Flyers, and we had this exact conversation of like he like broke his orbital socket, had all sorts of like injuries and stuff from getting hit with pucks and everything. So I was like, why don't you just wear like an eye, an eye shield? He's like, how could I go onto the ice as the enforcer and wear an ice shield? He's like, it doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. He's like, so I would never wear one. Um, but that's like kind of the mentality I think that we need to change. And like you said, maybe by starting younger and making it like a cool thing to do younger, you know, people will keep going. Yeah. Another, yeah. At the professional level, that all has to be negotiated in the collective bargaining agreements. Basically, the players' unions negotiate with the owners. And the as we just talked about, the pros – Say it interferes with performance. It inter- you know, they, it feels funny. It just doesn't feel natural. And to be fair, in their defense, they've been playing 15 and 20 years without it. So I mean, it, you talk about making them wear it all of a sudden, and they've been going so long without it. I mean, I get their concerns. That's why I think, you know, hockey did that. If, I don't remember how long ago it was when I was young that they they adopted helmets and they did a grandfather system where. Before a certain point, if you played before that point, you could basically still go without the helmet. But if you came into the league from the time of the rule on, you had to wear it. I think we're going to have to go to something like that. Uh, But even at the youth level to get those kids to where they don't know any different. That's all they've ever known is to wear helmets or face shields uh, or whatever. Right. it's it's tricky. I'm not going to lie that, you know, protective equipment is really, really good. It's not perfect, but it's not even just having the equipment. It's deciding who has to wear it. Right. Yeah. I, I started playing slow pitch softball in like an intramural league around here. And I started wearing one of the, the um, those little like catcher helmets like out when I'm out in the field. And to be honest, like I feel more confident when I'm like fielding a ground ball, knowing that if it bounces up and hits me in the head, like it might not be as bad. Um, but that kind of you know leads us to the other overconfidence in equipment that football players tend to have. And I know I was probably one of them. Like you know, with a face mask, you're not afraid to stick your face in there. And when you make tackles, so I think yeah. I, I know you know there's always a conversation of like you know take the helmets out of football and it would be a safer game. Like I don't know if you take the helmets away if that would be safer, but I think the face mask might make yeah. it safer because then. My brother makes that argument uh, makes that argument about helmets that that if we went back to the leather helmets, uh, we would uh, guys would not you know, they'd be scared and they wouldn't tackle the way they did. The problem with that argument is you, we can never test it because 
there's no chance we're ever going back to that uh, in this day of litigation and everything else. But two, the players are so much bigger and faster and stronger than they were in the 50s. I don't think it's coming. But the face mask, I think you're on to something. If you look at concussion rates, that's when they really skyrocketed, when they added the face mask. Uh, because like you say, the guys felt fearless. And I think you had a lot more, even if they weren't leading with their heads and making contact with the helmet, they were just delivering blows much more forcefully because they weren't scared. Right. Uh, Another part of that section of your book, which I really liked, I was hoping that you could kind of uh, explain that story about Greg Maddox and how his, his, his kind of approach to defense and what that led to. Yeah, I can't take credit for this. Uh, Gary Green, the medical director of Major League Baseball, pointed this out to me. And I actually grew up a Braves fan, uh, so I remember him pitching, and it made sense looking back. He won, those of you listening that are not baseball fans, uh, Greg Maddox was a Hall I think he is in the Hall of Fame now, uh, pitcher, uh, won um, – 18 gold gloves, it said in your book. Huge number of, yeah, not just games, but gold gloves, which is a fielding award. Basically, one player at every pit position wins a, it's sort of like best defensive player at that position. And the way he did it largely, according to Gary Green, was that after every pitch, he did his follow through in a way that his glove was basically immediately in position to field the ball. So there's two advantages to that. Obviously, the 18 gold gloves suggest that it makes him a better fielder. But the other advantage of that is it puts your glove in a position to potentially get to the ball before it hits you in the head. We're talking fractions of a second from when it comes off the bat to when it hits you in the head. So if your glove is ready to go, your chance of a serious injury is a lot lower. So whether or not you and I push convince people to have their kids wear helmets as a pitcher – I would absolutely learn that uh, follow-through technique to get the glove in fielding position because right there, that's going to make him a better pitcher. I thought that was great. I'm like, he's like a Hall of Fame pitcher, 18 gold gloves, and like, and that's how he played, and it protects him at the same time. I'm like, can't beat that. So I love that yeah. that point. Easy. That's what we need to do. We need things like that are simple changes that don't affect the game that not only improve performance but improve safety. And if there are, we need to always be looking for things like that. All right. Uh, just a couple questions to before we wrap up here. Um, we might have touched on this earlier, but like, what common traits do players who stay healthy have? Like, how do they live their lives? I think they focus on recovery and protecting their body, and I think this is true now more than it ever has been. You're seeing Golden State loves to brag about it, but lots of teams do it. You know, these catapult monitors and these recovery monitors. Like, uh, I know nobody uh, listening can see this, but I've got a whoop monitor like uh, the Major League Baseball and NBA players wear to assess your recovery, make sure you're getting enough sleep. I think there's uh, physiotherapists and strength and conditioning therapists and sports psychologists and everybody traveling with the pro teams now. So, this is very, very much not just about recovering from injuries, but um, optimizing body performance, making sure that you're getting enough recovery so that you can withstand the physical demands. I mean, because the physical demands of sports are greater now than they ever have been. The schedules are longer. They're doing crazy things with their travel and the guys are bigger, faster and stronger. So the healthy guys, I mean, you just look at Tom Brady and and his, his alkaline diet that he follows all year and his strength and conditioning program that he follows all year, even in the off season. There's a reason that these guys are not only injury free, but they, uh, 
they perform well so long, it's because they're really focusing on what they do off the field and off the court. That's great advice. Um, last like book related question. Uh, so in your experience, is there like, what's the major difference between male athletes and female athletes when they come into your office in terms of whether it's like emotionally, the type of recovery type of injury or their recovery? So I guess there's two sides to that. I think this is completely anecdotal. This is nothing that I think anybody has ever been able to study. But I will tell you just in my patients, the the female like high school, like female high school soccer, high school basketball, in a lot of ways to me, they're tougher than the guys uh, in recovering from like ACL tears. But having said that, I think the injuries are harder for them in terms of emotionally and socially. I think the the guys for whatever reason it doesn't isolate them the same way and it doesn't really disrupt their world i see so many females especially at the high school level where i mean they just lose it they're not going to be with their team now for 6 months or a year and you know they're not going to be around their friends and they lose their sense of identity it's sort of a grief reaction and I think that's real. I think, yes, they do a great job of recovering from injuries, but the flip side of that is I think the circumstances are a lot harder for them uh, than maybe the guys. I'm not sure why the guys cope with that a lot better, but for some reason they just do. We, we, I have an interview with a couple of sports, a sports psychologist and a sports nutritionist coming up, and it's going to be all about female um, athletes. So we'll, we'll try to bring up that topic and see if we well, can get... check that out. I, I'm curious how they feel about it. Uh, it. It's it's a complicated thing. And I think there's a lot of factors for every athlete and everybody's different. But that seems to be sort of a trend I've seen. The girls really struggle with that grief reaction, what the circumstances are around their team and around school and that kind of thing that the guys, for whatever reason, don't seem to have. Yeah, it's interesting. And I, I, I don't do a great job of getting enough females on the podcast. I try my best, but half the time the females that I reach out to just never reach back out to me. I don't know if they think I'm like a creeper or something, but yeah. uh, either way, I'm just trying to share their story. But anyway, it's been a, a difficult and a point that I know I need to bring up. I will tell you that I think that it's just been in the last five or ten years that it's sort of become acceptable for females to be good athletes and to be muscular in the gym in the case of adults. I, I think that there was always you know, a little bit of a stigma against real athletic, real strong girls and real strong women, and I think that's just now overturning, which is a great thing. Uh, we want you know, now we're getting close to 50-50 on, uh, at least at the youth and high school level, on boy-to-girl or male-to-female ratio in terms of who plays sports. So I think we're, we're making a lot of progress. But I think that's some of it. Is I, I think that uh, it's only been in recent years that there are a lot of females involved in sports at the coaching level, at the training level, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's a topic that is worth discussing. Um, yeah. So, yeah, just to conclude, uh, where can people find you on you know, your website, your podcast, your book? Yeah, no, I mean, I appreciate that. I, I would really direct everybody to my website because then that'll get you to the YouTube channel and the podcasts and Twitter and Facebook and all that. Uh, I'm on all those and love to interact there, but I would probably start at drdavidgeyer.com. Uh, articles, videos, podcasts, all sorts of stuff. My newspaper columns are there uh, and lots of other resources, uh, you know, free ebooks and other things that I do. You know, it's largely, you know, probably three quarters of my traffic are people that 
have injuries and they're trying to figure out what they are and try to, you know, take steps that are best to overcome those injuries. But it could be, there's a lot of stuff on injury prevention there. Uh, a lot of things about how to get involved in sports medicine. So a lot of, a lot of things. And I love to interact with people. There's a contact uh, section so you can get in touch with me. If it's just touching base on Twitter, I'd love that as well. And yeah, as always, definitely uh, check out my book, not to just get more sales. I, I say that because I think it's got a lot of important messages for really anybody involved with sports. And I agree with that 100%. And I just want to thank you for taking the time to write the book and taking the time to you know, write on your blog and the, the newspaper column and the podcast to get this information out and to fight the same fight that you know, a lot of us are trying to you know, change the culture of sports and help athletes recover from their injuries. And I know you put a tremendous amount of work in. I just want to show appreciation for that in, in what you do. And I think all the listeners can appreciate that as well. And I definitely recommend going out and, and getting the book. And I'm not just like blowing smoke because I have you on my show. Like I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think it hits all the important topics and not only does it explain like the issues, but it offers potential solutions as well. And I think it's one thing to complain about something and do nothing about it, but you're obviously doing something about it. So Dr. Guy, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today to share your story and to talk about your book. I really appreciate it. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. And I, and yeah, I hope uh, uh, that this podcast and, and all of this uh, that you do and that I do, uh, that we can uh, make sports and exercise not just more fun and better, you know, we perform better, that we make it uh, safer so that we can do it later in life. So any way that I can help, I, I, I'm privileged uh, for the opportunity uh, to be on your show and, and, and spread that message. Thanks, Dr. Geyer.